kids need to be in a place to be able to learn. So it may seem like you're paying them attention to the wrong things, but in fact, you are paying exactly attention because as a learner, we're human first. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Katrina Stevens. Welcome, Katrina. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode focused on the future of education. Such a fascinating topic given how much has changed in the last decade with all this digital transformation. Um, how much has changed in the last two years? So thinking about what the future holds is really exciting. Excited to have you not only as an experienced educator, but a leader and a thought leader. For those who don't know Katrina, um, would you care to give the listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So I started my career as an educator. I was in classrooms for um, close to two decades before I started getting interested in how do we create things for schools. Right now, I am the CEO and president for the Tech Interactive. And so I run a science center. It's family-friendly. We focus primarily on 8 to 18. And what we do is we teach problem-solving skills. So how do kids understand how Silicon Valley works and innovation in general, and how do they solve those kinds of problems? So we have kids who come in and they It's also about taking the complex ideas and making them simple and engaging for folks. So it's sort of like disguising learning through play. Awesome. And the tech's been around for a while. The tech has been around for uh, one iteration or another for about 35 years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I saw that you were the fourth kind of president and CEO. I am, and I'm the first educator. Nice. (laughs) That's great. I also noticed in your background that you were the director of learning at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, where you oversaw some serious grants, like 67 grants. I saw like 200 million. Tell us more about your experience there. Yeah, so when I was the director of learning science. And what that meant is that we, I had a team, worked closely with folks around how do we get what we know about how people learn? How do we actually get that into tools, into professional development, into schools? Um, over the past number of years, in fact, even in the last 10 years, we've had significant increases in what we understand about how we learn, how the brain works, and how do we do that in kind of culturally responsive settings. But it's not getting into schools, and it's not getting into our tools or the way that teachers are trained. So uh, the portfolio was really around finding folks who are working on some of those questions and looking at how can you design things with community. And one of our big projects was standing up, essentially, it's called Airdif, but it's essentially like an ARPA for education. And where you tackle big, huge challenges by bringing like technologists and researchers and educators, everybody together um, to be able to design solutions instead of like passing it from one person to the other to another. Sounds really relevant for you know today's workplace and how we prepare you know kids to enter the workplace. Yes. That's awesome. I also noticed. I thought this was really significant that you were uh, you know the deputy director and senior advisor in the U.S. Department of Educational Technology, where you led the future-ready schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? That seems significant. Yeah, so I was appointed by Obama during his administration. But in our role, we started out, Connected was one of the the big projects that was coming out of the White House. And um, Obama famously said, if you can have Wi-Fi in every coffee house, why can't you have it in every every school? (laughs) And so a lot of our efforts were around moving. It was about 30% of schools had um, broadband when I first started. We left and it it was closer to 90%. So, but 
So you can get the connectivity, but that doesn't matter <laughs> if teachers don't know how to use it. And so Future Ready Schools was really a partnership around how do we help districts and schools get ready for that? What does it mean? You know, it's fine to have technology in your classroom, but how do you use that effectively? And at the end of the administration, we had 3,200 districts who had signed a pledge and had gone through a lot of our, our training and worked with our resources. That's about a fifth of all the school districts in the country. So trying to get even a handful of superintendents to agree to something is difficult, but having like that <laughs> many. And what was pretty amazing for me was wonderful to kind of look back and recognize that all of those, those schools, I've heard from a, few, a number of those districts, that they were prepared. Like when the, you know, they might not have had Zoom for everyone, but right. all their teachers knew how to use technology more effectively and how to integrate it and to think about it as a tool rather than just, you know, just like a thing that you do and you add into your classroom. So I, I felt good about like about having a lot of those districts being prepared. Sounds super important given where we've been recently. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about today a little bit and then kind of jump more dedicated to the future and then at the end sort of get some, just some personal advice. So if we look at today, you know, innovation uh, often centers around problem solving. And you mentioned a lot of your curriculum right now is focused on problem solving. What are some of the big problems and challenges in education today at a macro level? Yeah, we are. So, the, and there's different problems in the U.S. than in, in other countries. But the biggest problem I see is that we still have a significant divides in terms of inequity. There, I might sit on the board for a Learn Platform, and they have data around, you know, when the pandemic hit, who was actually using technology, even in, in the same you know, in the same district, and it's what you would expect. You know, kids who are coming from lower socioeconomic regions, um, kids who are kids of color, were less likely to be engaged during the pandemic. And so, I think that we saw this stark contrast to that. And we are we we've known this, <laughs> and we're still not closing those gaps. So that's I think that's one of our biggest challenges. We're also just not designing for why the world works. You know, right. if you think about our the. We're still doing the same classes that I took. You know, it's like you have your English, you have your math, you have your science, and the world doesn't work that way. Yeah, so so we're we have a big disconnect between what's happening and how we are getting kids ready, and then how we and then what that we're preparing them for. There are other countries that do a significantly better um, in terms of that transit that transition. We also, and this is more of a, a policy thing, but. Our funding, I think this is connected, our funding is locally based. And until that really changes right. significantly, you're always going to have inequities in terms of how schools are resourced. Those sound like big challenges. One of my questions was, you know, do you think educational institutions are, are preparing stu students for today's modern workplace? And what I'm hearing is not as much here in the U.S. at least. Yeah, I am. Um, and there are many, many, many bright spots. So there are amazing schools and teachers out there who are doing some phenomenal work. But as a whole, that's not really how we think about it. There's a, a country that takes, they look at what their needs are, where, where they think jobs will, what they will look like. And then they go back all the way to the middle school curriculum and make sure that they're preparing enough young people who, to fill those jobs. We don't have anything like that. We don't think about yeah, how many people are going to need in these. And so we have huge gaps in our workforce where we can't hire. And then we have folks who can't get jobs. Yeah, and so, so there's this huge mishmash that we're not paying attention to. Hey, this is Alex Young, the founder and CEO at Verti and former trauma and orthopedic surgeon. What are the big problems or challenges in education today? Well, some of the biggest challenges facing education today are that we don't really prepare our learners for what the future of work is going to look like. If you think about what you learn in school or at university, often it's very technical. I think back to my career in medicine where I learned how to treat a disease and a lot of the theory and how to apply it, but I didn't necessarily learn a huge amount about skills like leadership, 
or teamwork or communication. And that was really learned on the job when I was a practicing doctor and then when I was leading operative teams. And it was these skills that really helped me to translate my ability to lead and to manage people effectively into business and to scale my company, Verti. Hello, this is Sujit Kanuganti, CEO of Spectre Technologies, an AIML-based SaaS platform for enhancing efficiency in education. One key observation or challenge that I personally saw is education is not developing the students to be job ready. Education is being imparted, but uh, there is always a gap of all the graduate students or postgraduate students who are coming out of their colleges. And there is knowledge gap in terms of they being job ready. Some of the tech companies are trying to fill in this gap by creating content which is specific for the students to be job ready in specific fields. But there is a challenge with the enterprises having to rely on these resources right right away. So there is cost associated to it and a learning gap associated to it. Hi, I'm Steve Deneen, president and founder of Fuse Universal. The bigger challenge in education, I think, is in terms of how we think about designing it to create the end goal. I think if we look at corporate education, the analogy we all I often use is drivers of, of how people who get driving licenses for black taxis in London get their license. So they're taught the same method that they've been taught since the Victorian age. So they have to actually learn and remember every single kind of street route across London. It takes about three, four years. To me, that's quite a good analogy metaphor for what happens in a lot of education, whether that's kids' education or whether that's corporate education. We still have this mindset that we want to continue to use the same way of delivering learning and delivering education, which is this brain stuffing type approach. We're going to teach you all this stuff upfront in the hope that you're going to retain this and that somehow work out how to apply it. I think if you then look at Uber, who don't do that, who obviously we've Googleized the whole of the streets across the world, an Uber driver is able to apply uh, and in 10 days get a license to drive, to drive in any city across the world. And you look at those two companies, the Black Taxi Company is still limited to London and I think actually bought by Geely versus Uber is a multi-billion dollar company growing at you know, ridiculous rates as an organization. So for us, I think you look at that and see how technology has changed the paradigm of education in that particular industry. I think that's the opportunity to use that same level of transformation of how we think about learning for kids and for adults. I mean, what are some influential trends that sort of are happening right now that are impacting education? But I do think there's a work-based skills. Like there's lots of attention that's being paid to that, mostly because on the higher ed side and in workforce, you're seeing significant more attention paying to upskilling right now. Um, the, we've always known we had an upscale problem, but right now there's, everyone is, including me, <laughs> are struggling to hire folks. And so it's a more competitive market. And so, so uh, companies are recognizing they really have to start doing something in terms of the upscaling piece. There, but on the K-12 side, there's some really interesting things happening that I think you know, if we pay attention to and look for as we're moving forward, are the technologies advancing to such a degree that we're able to do things that we could never do before. Um, and one of the, like, we're, we're looking at like VR and AR and AI and, and all of those are each separately um, have um, real possibilities and, and people are doing some interesting things with those. So those are tra- those are things I see coming forward. And, and I'll give an example. So I um, had a great conversation with um, a gentleman who runs Accenture on the West side, the West, Western part of the country. And he's the biggest purchaser of Oculus because they do all of their training now in VR, all of their onboarding and training, like you are actually in a VR environment. 
you know, and so I think about that and I was like, how are we preparing kids to be able to do that? And are we preparing all kids to be able to be in those environments? So I, I'm starting to, you know, you start to see pop-ups of things that are happening rather than, which means that we could have this achievement divide actually get bigger and bigger if some f- folks have even more access to the really cutting edge. Right. And then so we could, we could end up having people even further behind because they just don't have the opportunities to like, get into those things. That makes sense. You're kind of taking us into the future, which is awesome. What If we look forward, you know, 10 to 20 years from now, like what do we see changing dramatically? You mentioned some of the challenges of today, but give us 10 to 20 years. What do you think education will be like for, you know, K through 12 and beyond? So I want to answer that question two ways. So there's the question of like what I hope and could happen and what I worry. <laughs> so I worry that even though we've had this, we had a worldwide experiment that we've never would have planned intentionally, but did we learn anything? You know, and there are schools that are, are that are essentially like, right, that's over. <laughs> like we're back to and without actually changing any any practice. And you know, you hear this all the time, but the topics and the the content is exactly the same as what we were teaching 100 plus years ago. So even though we've had lots, many, many, many movements and many moments where we thought education was going to change significantly, it's stubborn. You know, like on, on the macro level, we are not actually <laughs> moving in, in the way. So, but I'm hoping even things like right, right now, I think one of our biggest problems is that we've designed education in K-12 for adults. It's not designed for kids. If you think about it, it's um, it's about caretaking. So it's babysitting. Like it's designed around the work day. It's not designed around when kids learn best. Younger kids learn best in the earlier in the morning. They're if, if you have children, they're up six a.m. and they are ready to go. <laughs> if you work with teens, not so much. <laughs> you know, like like the brain actually has different development in terms of attention. But we do our, our we do our busing. All of our when our days are scheduled, it's based on busing, and so. The younger kids actually start school later usually, and, and high school kids are like can be starting school at like 7.15 in the morning. So like, that's an example. We're also designing our classes around, and I was a teacher for a long time, and so I completely understand this, and I was, you know, and I was an administrator as well. So it's very complex. But we designed the day around the, uh, what's easier for teachers. You know, it's sort of like, I know math. I'm, I have my math block. I have my content, and I'm going to teach all of the kids at once. But that's not how we learn. That's not how kids learn. And just because you're the same age, and actually you might not even be the same age because we do, like New Zealand has kids come in every three months when they're younger, because developmentally three months is actually a big deal when you're, when you're three, four, five. In the U.S., it's a cutoff, and then you're in, in, in the same classroom. But we are, we are not tailoring that education. And there's real potential, you know, given the, the level of ability for technology to be able to give insights to teachers for them to be able to adjust but right now, it's still really intensive. It takes a lot of time for teachers. They still are having to take all the different kinds of tools that they're using and figure out how those connect and what that actually means about changing something for a particular child. And it's also, on a high school level, driven by teacher passion. I was an English teacher. I love books. <laughs> you can see that. <laughs> yeah. And so I love teaching books. You know? And so like, I, I trained you know, to teach English, and I, you know, that's what I love to do. The world isn't organized that way. The world is organized around, here's a client. Here, let's talk about climate and let's talk about how all of the different kinds of components, how to use math for that, how to use storytelling, how to use those. And that, that's really hard. It's harder for teachers to know how to be able to create that kind of project-based um, calendar and scheduling. And so I understand the challenge of that. But if we really, really want all kids to learn, we need to start shifting and be driven by how kids think about things. Right? Young people come into the world, little kids, they love to learn. I mean, if you, they, they play and they, they, they learn through play, which is actually why I love working at a science center. And somehow by middle school, we've knocked it out of them, that joy and that interest. 
I think it is because it's like, okay, go sit in the seat for <laughs> for many hours when that's not how, like, in terms of human development, that is not appropriate for little kids. Little kids actually should be moving. So there's a lot of that that I'm hoping that we start to pay attention to as we move forward. The other trend that I that I do actually see, and I think will stick, is paying more attention to whole child. This idea, there's been a lot of attention to like mental health and social emotional well-being right now. Um, now we've had phases of that, but I think that, like I remember the last whole child movement, but I, I think that some pieces of this are going to, I think one, because we understand much more about how the brain works and how if you are dealing with things outside of the school, how those impact you, literally not, your brain can't absorb and can't function as well. So I think we're going to start seeing more, more schools uh, paying more attention to that as well. What does education look like 10 to 20 years from now and what might be really different to our kids of all ages? Well, in 10 to 20 years, we're going to be looking at a big evolution in the learning space. We're going to be looking at technologies that we're seeing today, like virtual reality and augmented reality in the metaverse and AI and blockchain, all much, much more mature and really applying these to solve real world problems. We're seeing a little bit of that now, but I suspect in the future, these will be integrated into the core curriculum of most education settings, whether that's at schools or corporates. And one example of that is how we can actually immerse people in real world stressful environments before they get there. So whether that is a stressful sales call where a customer is argumentative and the sales professional needs to actually navigate some of the objections, stick to a framework and win them over to practice their soft skills under pressure, or whether it's a school student who can really be transported into a work experience environment, perhaps in an operating theatre if they want to do medicine, in a much more meaningful and relevant way than what they might get access to now. And what that's going to do is really democratise access to some of these skills that are only learnt on the job. And if we think about books like Mastery or Carol Dweck's The Growth Mindset, really a lot of learning is about repetition and stretching your brain and your memory muscles in order to learn things as quickly as possible. There's a term called experiential learning, which is basically learning through experience. Technologies like AI and the metaverse can put people into these situations that mimic the real world, but allow it to be reproducible and for training to be delivered in a safe space where people can fail and develop that growth mindset and reflect on what they could do better next time and then immediately jump back in and better their scores and better their ability to get better really, really quickly. And what this means for both learners and corporate educators is that your learning cycle and the time it takes to learn anything can be massively reduced. And for some things like soft skills, which are a little bit esoteric in how they're taught, they lack data and they're quite subjectively assessed, this can have data applied to it and we can really analyze what good soft skills looks like, whether that's leadership, whether it's communication skills, whether it's providing feedback in a corporate setting or developing empathy, we can actually start to understand what the best communicators look like, what the best and most appropriate way to deliver feedback is, and look at any biases in that process by, by actually looking at the data rather than just seeing that happen in the real world where a lot of that information is lost. And that's really important for instigating behavior change, for consolidating long-term memories, and for really making learning meaningful and improving people's real workforce skills for the future of work. Education 10 to 20 years from now, all the educational institutions would be, I think, fully digitally transformed. All the education will be, I think, will be through technology-first approach, content delivery, teaching, 
practicals, examination, everything will be based on technology. Even books, I think, will be delivered on technology uh, through digital medium. There would be highly personalized content for individual needs. Uh, probably traditional graduation might become a little redundant, I would say. And content will be tailored, made to and highly personalized to uh, individuals' choices and their preferences. A regular three-year, four-year degree might kind of go away, I would say, and uh, more bespoke courses uh, would be delivered to meet individual needs. So with respect to business or career aspirations. And one technology that might play a big role is AR-VR and pedagogy powered through AR-VR. So any content, there'll be huge content that will be developed for these two technologies. One risk that I would say is to what level we can use AR-VR because of the other challenges that it might impart in terms of mental health issues. AIML and AR-VR are going to be significantly changing the future of education. I think we're already starting now to see, to see a shift towards, I guess in the, in the corporate world, we talk about push learning versus pull learning. The push is, you know, we're going to learn on a Thursday afternoon when you attend a course versus pull is you're choosing to learn something either because you need to solve a problem here and now. So I need to know, know how do I do a pivot table? So I want to search and find it. I don't want to learn a course a year away and actually try to retain all that type of stuff. If as a new parent, if I want to figure out how do I assemble my pram, the brand new pram I've got, then I want to probably know how to do that at the minute I'm assembling it. So I want to search and apply and find that information and, and learn it there and then. So I think what we are seeing now is a different way to design learning and to move a lot of the knowledge that happens in a course and move that outside of that so it's instantly available. You look at how, you know, probably the number one, learn, the number one and number two learning platforms in the world are probably YouTube and Google. You know, YouTube is the place where you go to get the, the actual the concept or the procedure and actually be able to watch that and understand that when you need it. And Google is, I need that instant answer. It's the Google Maps. Do I go left and right? I just need a text or I needed the actual an answer to a question. I think those technologies are, are now available, obviously, for companies like us who build, who build technology. That AI that drives you know, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Google are now available, for example, in our technology, in our products. And we're obviously trying to do exactly the same thing. We're trying to say, well, how do we now use this level of technology to understand content, help people digitize and organizations or the, or the teachers, but, you know, best, best practice, then how do you get that to people when they need it? And that changes all the whole, even I think your upfront training, because now your upfront training is more practical, more practice, and rather than focused on, let me try and stuff everything into your, into your brain, because the cloud is now your extended brain and available within seconds. So what I'm hearing, just to kind of uh, share back, see if I got it right, the hope is that it'll be a lot more user-centered around you know, how individual groups and age groups of students learn and kind of catering it more to them and thinking about maybe some more immersive and sort of blended experiences that aren't quite as regimented as our schools are today. Yeah, absolutely. And as you get older, that that should be connected to workforce and or problem-based. I mean, they, they, right. When you talk to teens, I have a student um, board, they tell us it, their biggest thing. So one, they want to have a well-paying job. But yeah, but the other big thing is they, and their parents actually care more about that than they do. Yeah. <laughs> but young people care about wanting to make a difference. You know, and so we should be leveraging that and helping young people you know, get the skills they need to be able to tackle those things that they care about. And that idea of kind of more purpose-driven approaches and in a connection to real life. 
kids, I mean, how many of, how many people that you know as adults who actually use calculus in their life? Right. Not many. Like I, yeah, I did, I did, I went <laughs> on the way to BC calculus in, in, in high school and did not need yeah. that. We need data science. Like we're, we're teaching the wrong, <laughs> you know, the wrong curriculum to prepare kids right. for, for what they actually need to do. Where do you see, you know, you mentioned, I think your background uh, mentioned a focus on STEM. How are things evolving there, knowing that that's a big part of our future? Yeah. And so I think the the science the science and the math part people cover more. At the tech, we focus a lot more on the the T and the E, so the technology and the engineering, because those are parts that are a lot harder for teachers to be able to integrate. For me, the biggest reason I'm in this is being able to change the next generation of who is going into STEM. It's not just that you want to have diverse team. You talk about this all the time, like you have better results if you have a diverse team. I would argue further that you get better problems if you have a diverse team. So if you have different lived experience, you're going to look at, you're going to choose a different problem and frame it differently in terms of how you solve it. And so some of our fields like software engineering, it's going to be really hard to catch up in terms of creating it much more diverse. But we're at the beginnings of some of these other fields. Like we're at the beginning of what data science can do or what, um, you know, AI and what AR and VR. So I make, I'm looking at like, how do I get kids who don't have engineers in their family? Um, how do we get them to be able to, to see like, oh, I could go into this field. For me, that's that's the reason I'm doing a lot more in STEM because I think that we will have different problem solving if we get different folks with different lived experiences going into those fields. Thank you. Let's dive a little bit deeper into those three. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, AI and then AR, VR. My two youngest kids, their their first ten words were Alexa, like in the, in the, the first ten <laughs> yeah. words, you know. And so yeah. this notion of like conversational AI and and you know them naturally getting answers right has been really interesting for folks that are just growing up with that and thinking that oh that's just the way things are, right? Tell us more about your thoughts on how AI could shape education, and then let's dive a little bit into the immersive side of like AR VR. Yeah, so I think AI has significant potential. And I think we need to be cautious. So one of the things, and you're seeing this in you know in the workplace as well as products are starting to come out. AI is not itself is agnostic, but it's designed by humans. And so all of the biases that you that can go into something can get amplified. So you have to be at every stage be paying attention to how you can't just let an algorithm run. You have to often frequently step in and and actually counter a human bias to be able to make sure that it's giving you the same things. Um, I, there was a, a one of my grants that I was really excited about. It's what we call it the feedback prize. It's like actually in the, about to close right now, but it was around how do you provide make how do you use AI to be able to give more feedback to students on writing and. One of the things that when the project was first brought to me, that I added a whole year and before we even launched that part of a, a competition to design an algorithm, had designed a whole year of working with teachers. It's like you need to be working with teachers and watching how they're using tools and understand what they need, and looking at what is the what are the differences. We uh, in terms of like students who are EL, for example, for English language learners, what does that look like? So we tried to make sure that all of the our understanding of what was actually needed went into those, into the planning for that algorithm and went into the, the training set that we used. And we made sure that the training set had a much more diverse uh, group of writers. So it had a much, so that we were able to actually um, have it better equipped to be able to help kids for English as a second language. So it's like really think, being very thoughtful about what that process looks like. And, and some of the more recent um, with machine learning, deeper learning, and some of those are a little bit of a black box. And so that's a little worrisome. Uh, again, power, like we can actually do a lot more with a smaller data set than we used to, but it's harder to then be able to know where to look for 
what's happening in terms of the like what bias is being built in. And I'll, I'll give you one example in so on Facebook Marketplace. So you know it's an algorithm that the more folks who um, sell things, you know, like and get good feedback, the they rise to the top. Well, we have a there in the U.S. Unfortunately, actually, it's, um, there's a bias towards wanting to to buy from someone who's white. You know, and so you so the algorithm started you know, positioning folks who were white and ahead. And now Facebook r- saw that and started to do countering for that. But that's just one example of how that shows up all, all over the place. And so being really careful to make sure that at, these advances are not hurting people. At the same time, we need to teach young people how this stuff works. Yeah, so that's one of the things that we're at the tech we really want to make sure is that this isn't just a, a, a thing that happens. You, <laughs> like this is created by humans and you could actually create an AI if you, or use AI to do something if you wanted to. And having that mentality of when you're interacting with it to recognize there are humans behind that who are making decisions. I think that's an important piece that needs to get included in K, in, into K-12. Yeah, I think the ethical side of uh, AI, I think is really important as we think about how it, it can be so natural. We've seen this with the proliferation of uh, voice AI. I think there's like 3 billion devices now, and that happened in yeah. years, just a, a short amount of years. Yeah, this is one of those, um, there's another project that I was working on where a grant where that had to do with the voice recognition piece was how about helping kids be able to identify um, reading issues sure. in the early age. We ended up going with a group called Soapbox Labs that was coming out of Dublin because they had a much broader worldwide range in terms of like how English is spoken. Yeah, and and uh, that training set again is going to be this. We, we have to be really, really careful. Otherwise, when young kids who you know are in a, coming from a different country or or have a different language spoken at home or a different accent, they get there's a bias built in and saying like they and it doesn't catch the things that they might need help with or it, it over um, says that they actually don't have some of the skills that they do. Makes sense. Tell us more about your thoughts with AR, VR. I'm, I'm Im- imagining these immersive experiences where kids can like go to Mars or walk with dinosaurs yeah. or, you know, yeah. see a map <laughs> that jumps off the page or something like that. Like any like uh, trends you're seeing in the educational world that are really, where things are really sticking there. Yeah. So Dreamscape Learn is at um, ASU, so Arizona State University. And Dreams, so it's a completely immersive VR experience mm-hmm. at ASU now all kids take their biology labs in a VR environment. Um, and it's called yeah, an alien zoo. And one of the things that's nice. interesting about that is that it actually levels the playing field a little bit. So, cause no one has ever <laughs> worked with aliens in terms of diagnosing a biological. So it's about learning the skills of how you diagnose and understand like what might cause something. So you're in an environment, one of the alien babies, uh, you know, this creature is sort of like a frog cat is sick. And you have to, you have to figure out why. Is it environmental? Is it this or is it that? they are showing incredible retention on those exercises, significantly more than when, when young people are in labs. Mm. So there's there's moments for where um, I think an immersive environment can be really, really powerful. Um, there's a There are people right now who are creating immersive experiences around like immigration and looking at like what is, you know, and those, you go through that experience of what is it like as you're crossing a border. And it just changes how you think about what that, it gives you empathy in a ways that, that other, other things could not do. But we have to be cautious because there's a lot of research around saying uh, if I were t- to take on the persona of someone who's African-American, for example, that is actually not a healthy thing to do. There are moments when it's useful to be able to go into that thing. And then there are places where it seems like a good idea, but it's actually really not a good idea. Mm. 
there's unintended consequences. Yeah, there's a lot of, so one of the things for me, I think that this has real potential, but at the same time, we need to maybe make sure that we're looking at, hey, what does that do developmentally? You know, is it appropriate for which age groups and what kinds of experiences? There's a group that is using AI and avatars in China to teach reading in rurally. So one, it's amazing. You know, kids who don't have access to reading teacher now have access. But in practice, it, you've got kids who are, on, who are very young with an avatar for three, three hours a day. And what does that mean developmentally in terms of their, how they think about what reality is and what relationships are? And I mean, if you think about just like, yeah, you know, when I first got my um, GPS, I named her. Right. You know, you know, it's sort of like we have a natural propensity to kind of like <laughs> to do that. We, sure. we um, personify uh, inanimate objects. And so I want to make sure that as we roll these things out, that we are paying attention to what's the impact. How is this? How is this doing it? And how are we making sure that we're not creating more inequities? One way I'm thinking about that is that uh, the same thing about Dreamscape, I'm looking at being able to bring that to the tech. I have over 85 percent of all the school districts um, in the Silicon Valley who come to me. Uh, and those are primarily Title I schools. If VR gets put into, um, the, the schools that can afford to bring it into theirs are schools that probably are going to be middle or upper class, which means that those are the kids who are going to get the experiences. So when they go off to you know, ASU, they already know what they're doing. <laughs> they're already part of it. Sure. And so by I'm more of a community resource. So if I can bring it here, then because I, I can build something at scale in a way that an individual schools can't. And so thinking about like, how is there a way to be able to make it so that there's more access to these kinds of experiences? And the, one of the things I'm really interested in is what things are good for what kinds of learning? Like what kinds of learning should be really con conceptually difficult things to put, wrap your head around? So if the size of the universe is really difficult to wrap your head around, for example, um, even for adults, <laughs> um, right. like, you know, is that better taught in a VR experience where you can get a, a different sense of that? What kinds of things should be hands-on? You know, I'm like, I, I'm going to run a hands-on museum. Like, I want to make sure that, that you know, like, that's really important, that we learn tactically, that you tactically, like, that's mm -hmm. an important component. What kinds of things should be you know, in a conversation? And we're not doing as much with that. So it's more like, here's the cool technology, rather than here's a concept that's probably better taught in that environment, and whereas this concept's better taught in this kind of environment. And really making those kind of skilled, thoughtful decisions around like how we teach what and to whom and you know, again, in what context. I think with AR, VR in uh, education, students will be able to understand the concepts by seeing and not just by listening and imagining, which was the case before. Though there were some charts and working models that were helping uh, the students and videos with uh, uh, lately. But with AR, VR, it gives more of a 3D visualization of all the real world scenarios, be it infrastructure, be it machinery, even healthcare. The real world, the virtual immersion of the students into these practical applications will increase the learning levels of these students and make them job ready. What role do you see AR and VR playing in immersive education? Well, as the founder of a virtual reality company, I'm a little bit biased on this, but I think it's going to be absolutely revolutionary. I think there are a number of extremely good applications that we can use now that will show that virtual reality and augmented reality can massively expedite learning in pretty much every sector. So if we go all the way back to school and how we might learn on something like a field trip, if you're reading a textbook about Roman civilization or ancient Egypt, it's quite difficult actually picturing what that looks like and getting into the brains of people who used to live in that time. And so when you're then quizzed about it, 
you don't really have that kind of emotional connection. You can't really visualize it and the learning isn't that meaningful. Whereas with something like virtual reality, we're now able to get people to actually walk in the footsteps of people who've lived in ancient Rome or ancient Egypt, show them these computer generated environments, mock up these you know, life-size replicas of the pyramid in a classroom without teachers and schools needing to send people on very expensive field trips for them to really sort of understand that and lock in that memory into uh, people's long-term memories and, and, and make it remembered for a long time. Equally, uh, for things like surgery and medicine, we're actually getting access to training environments like an operating theater is limited both by access, resources, and geography. It really opens up an equity of access for learning of all different varieties. So for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa, there are a handful of medical schools which are spread out over a huge distance. And their access to actual learning is really limited by that geography and their resources. But even in the West, in the UK or the United States, one hospital and operating theater in one country might have very, very different clinical cases and patient cases to one just down the road. And so what we can do with virtual reality is we can standardize a lot of those experiences, whether it's a clinical encounter in a hospital, whether it's a surgical procedure, and we can allow people to practice them safely and repetitively on demand while also collecting data about how they do. And that does a couple of things. Firstly, it feeds back that data to the learner so they get immediate feedback, whereas in the real world, they might not get that. They might just go through an operation. They might just go through a clinical encounter and then have to spend time reflecting on it if they do that. Or what else? Or they might also find that just the process of being able to access those experiences on demand makes them a little bit less scary when they see them in the real world. And therefore, they'll take more from those real world encounters because they've got a baseline of meaningful knowledge that their brain can then connect new knowledge to. One of the things you mentioned was, uh, you know, impact on the brain and, you know, this we have, you know, TikTok now has more than a billion users and we have like even more, it seems like lack of attention or ability to kind of keep attention, yeah. with, especially with the younger generation that are being given phones at a, at a young age. Any thoughts on that impact and how we how we cater to this new generation of learners or help them learn differently more and more interpersonal skills? Yeah, and I, a few things about that because it's not going away. You know, so so <laughs> like social media is is here to stay, and I worry about the you know the impact it has on young girls, for example, young women, or um, folks who are non-binary. Like, how does what they see impact their how they think about themselves? That I think takes means that we've got to be essentially creating digital citizens. Like, we need to be teaching and preparing young people to understand what they're seeing, how they're posting, how that interacts, and how it impacts how, how they think about themselves. So they themselves have the tools to be able to interpret those things. We actually blew up on TikTok. So the tech has, has uh, <laughs> um, we, nice. we had over a quarter of a million views on a TikTok that was on data science. Okay. So like data science, like opportunity insights. We were highlighting how you can look in, and use data to understand um, uh, poverty. And well over 200 comments from, from teens. Who were talking about it, so you can use technology and or these you know these mediums to be able to. Not everybody who's on TikTok is using it for you know to see the latest dance number. <laughs> yeah, so the, for us, it's sort of like, well, if the kids are there, that's where I'm going to go. 
And what we see is that they'll engage with that and then they'll engage and then they continue to kind of go into the next pieces of it. I do worry about the kind of attention span issue and this, this, we need to intentionally put time into schools where, um, where you, you think about it as like a, a tech break. A friend of mine wrote a book called, um, uh, it's right here, Digital for Good, um, Richard Collada. And at the end of each chapter, it actually has these kind of recommendations for parents. And one of them is that you just take tech breaks. It's not a, like tech is bad or, or tech is forbidden, but hey, you know, like, what should we do instead? Let's go for a walk. <laughs> so instead of being like, oh, these things are bad and you shouldn't be on them, but it's more like, it's the way you think about your diet or, you know, it's, you want a mix of things. <laughs> you want a mix <laughs> you know, of so things. So how much time and, and what kinds of technology you're using uh, and being thoughtful and helping our kids actually be able to learn how to navigate that too. I think that's super, super important because we see even more technology coming and it's coming fast and, and we don't have time sometimes to figure out the impacts. So this principle of connecting intentionally and also connecting in, or disconnecting intentionally, I think is super important. Fresh actually developed a site called balancetech.org, which actually just focuses on resources around this topic of oh. connecting with tech, yeah. which is part of what we do working in AR, VR. That's one of our biggest spaces, mm -hmm. robotics, AI, et cetera. But we also realize, like, hey, the disconnection is really important. How do we help our team think about disconnection? And, and so we kind of put that into a, a resource for others and hope to keep adding more there. But definitely a passionate topic for us. Any, like, I think this side of technology is often not talked about. And I think I think in the last five years, we're talking about a lot more is, you know, how technology can get in the way or, hey, the ethics of technology. And it's not that we hadn't been talking about it, but we're talking about it a lot more because we're realizing the impact of how this, you know, this has changed our lives, you yes. know, dramatically in yeah. the workplace, in, in our family lives, yeah. in our personal lives, how we react, interact uh, with people. So any other thoughts on on that and, and how technology can get in the way of learning and things that people are doing to show the different side of skills that that our kids also need to develop and learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's well, sort of funny is that I was one of those anti-tech teachers. <laughs> okay. So I loved, yeah, yeah. I, again, I love my books. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I loved it. I, I love to have classroom discussion about books, you know, and, and topics and, and really, really taught was race, class, and gender. But yeah, mm -hmm. but through storytelling and, and through these narratives, yeah, I was the last person to get a, a cell phone. I was like, that's oh, wow. gonna, yeah, I, I, all my friends had cell phones. Like, I finally got one in the car because I was driving students and, you know, like, well, that's all I'm going to use it for. You know, now, of course, it's like glued to me. <laughs> you know, I, I, and I ended up being the deputy director for the Office of, a, of Ed Tech. For me, what brought me into the, t into being technologies, I worked in Bermuda for three years and I wanted to bring in experiences for my kids the only way I could bring them in because they were literally on an island was through using technology. So for me, technology became this, it was about opportunities, like being able to bring opportunities and access to, to people who didn't have, didn't have access to that. Saying that, so they are, you know, your question was really around, can technology get in the way? That's where yeah. I would go back to the, the, like the idea of like the balance. You know, yep. like when, when do you need breaks from that? I live in Silicon Valley now, and families who work at, you know, like the Googles, the Adobe's, the Apples of the world, they take their kids on vacations where like they're not allowed to use technology, you know, where there's hours like you're going, you're being really thoughtful around you do, like it shouldn't be glued to you. When people worry about things like, well, now kids don't remember things or they can't do math. I don't actually worry about that stuff because that level of technology will exist. Like I, what we want young people is to be, is to have that additional layer of 
well, how do, for me, it's like, how does the calculator work? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah. like I want young people to be able to, <laughs> to learn how to create those things, you know, and to be able yep, to understand yep. those things, not, not actually be able to have those kinds of rote skills. We don't, we really don't need them to the same degree that we used to. Um, there's a big, huge debate in on handwriting, for example, because you know, people are, little, are forgetting it. And the question sure. is like, does that matter? But the place where we're talking about technology getting in the way is often when it is designed not with a community. So I have seen examples of, so Angela Duckworth, for example, does an amazing work on grit. Uh, she was one of our, our former for character, uh, grantees for Character Lab. Some of her material got used poorly in the environment. So you know, again, so really important to understand perseverance and grit and how that, how that impacts how we learn. And some of the tools that got made that around measures, and again, these were digital measures, really almost were weaponized for young people because we had a, di- like, what does it mean to have grit? And there's bias built into those questions. And so I would argue that some of our young kids who are coming from challenging circumstances actually have way more grit than others, but they were, but they were appearing to it. The real issue was the curriculum didn't match who they were in their context and it didn't matter to them. And that wasn't a kid problem. That was an adult problem, but the tool you know, is being, you know, if you look at the tool and it's just like, it pumps out this, this kid has this score. And so suddenly now he's in this, he's in this category. That's when technology can really go awry. So you still always have to have that human component of, of making a decision and going, you know, I, I understand that that kid took that test that day, but I knew what was going on with that kid. And I think we, I actually think this kid's really talented and we should still think about putting them into a different kind of class. Like right. you still have to have that human insight and really understand what's going on with the child. Thank you. So kind of more personalized learning and more insights into that user experience as we think about these different ages, ages, age groups will be really important to the future. I would say with that, so using those tools for personalized learning, but also making sure that the adult looks at it and does that make sense? Giving who I know about this child, does it make sense? That it's not handled by, (laughs) (laughs) it's not all AI driven? No. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, what about testing? You know, testing, I think, has gotten a lot of heat um, for the just the, the kind of narrow focus of the type of testing. And we know there's not really a correlation between someone's GPA and how well they do in their career, as an yeah. example. But this notion of being creative smart or social smart or street smart or business smart, just all these different types of smart. Do you see testing, you know, changing a lot in the future? I do. And I'm already starting to see it shift. Now, and nice. I will say... You know, like going back to like no child left behind. By the end of that, really significant problems. Like we were, because what happened is you had a you had a teacher who was doing a test, and then you got to do the practice. So suddenly schools are doing a practice test, and then the state has a practice test. So suddenly kids are getting a ridiculous number of tests to get ready for a federal test. But what that did do is it made schools pay attention to kids of color, lower socioeconomic and special ed. So suddenly, I literally was in schools where you just kind of tuck the special ed kids over here and just let them do their thing. And so, the, so the real, so there, there was some of that testing did sort of create some accountability, but yeah. So, so testing in and of itself is not a bad thing. And in fact, a good assessment in a classroom is a form of teaching and learning. Like as you're asked a question on a test, um, it actually reinforces the learning. So, testing in and of itself is, or assessment in itself is actually not is not a bad thing. Um, I am starting to see much better measures that are being developed that are capturing some of these other things. Like I was just talking about the grid. There's some really good ones. And in fact, Angela basically was like, oh, I want to make sure my stuff is used properly and was starting, you know, started to get in and working with those. They work well when they are designed with a community. So you have to, you have to understand like, what does that community care about? Um, uh, uh, Hawaii, for example, has a concept of this idea of ha or spirit. 
and that integrating that into their assessments there in terms of how they think about what is important, those are very different assessments and very contextualized that have real meaning for that community. And so like one size does not actually fit all. And so I, I think we're going to get better and better about being able to be able to do that at scale in a way that we couldn't. So many opportunities in the future as we think about where we are today and, and where things need to go. What would be some advice you would give to you know educational institutions? You have such a depth of experience. If you're like, hey, here's here's three things or two main things I would be focusing on right now, what would be some near-term advice that you would give? Well, it's interesting. Right now we've got I have districts in my region who are going two different directions. One of the one set are saying, our kids lost learning for the last two years, and we are going to like drill and make sure that those kids get those remedial skills. You can tell from my tone of voice, I don't think that's the right approach. <laughs> okay. And then that way, another set that are like, our kids have been on screens for the last two years. They need to get back and get the joy of learning. And those are the kids that were, you know, were getting in, coming in for field trips and experiences. Mm-hmm. So one, I would go back to sometimes we do things that win the battle, but not the war. You know, so if you get a young person who like, yeah, finally gets that math skill, but hates math now, you know, then, then you've lost really in the long term. So I, so I think my advice one is like, keep your eye on the long term. You know, so like, yes, there are like right now you've got a COVID case in your school and you've got to process and deal with that. And that's real. Like that's really real, but making sure that you're accounting for some of your time where you are still thinking about what did we learn and how is that going to change where we're, how we're moving forward. And then I think it's paying attention to the decisions you're making around what kinds of curriculum you're going to bring in, what which teachers you're going to bring in. We know that one teacher of color in your entire experience from K-12, you know, K to 12 has a significant impact on whether or not you go to college if you're a child of color. One teacher. You know, so so the, there's these decisions that, you know, looking at what we know about how kids learn and making deliberate decisions about what that, what that looks like in their classroom. And I would if, when, if you're making decisions about like, okay, are we going to do a VR school, for example? Yeah. Because I think that, you know, again, I'm excited about some of these potentials, but recognizing what's the trade-off? What are you trading to be able to do that? Because maybe the time isn't the right thing because what, what you might actually need at your school right now are, are counselors. You know, so like being, recognizing where you the are. mental health. Yeah. Uh, there was a, a really amazing school in Houston when right after the um, hurricane came through. The principal there made a deliberate decision he was going to spend several weeks when the kids all came back. He wasn't even going to worry about learning. Yeah, he um, he set it up so that they the kids got to talk about their experiences. They really bonded as a community. Um, and then they kind of got back on track. They had higher scores than they ever had before. Yeah, because like kids need to be in a place to be able to learn. Social connection, community. So it may seem like you're paying attention to the wrong things, but in fact, you are paying exactly attention because humans, as a learner, we're human first. In what ways might technology get in the way of learning and hold us back? Well, any type of technology that's introduced that's new or novel goes through what's called the adoption cycle or adoption curve. And what often happens is that there are some organizations and some people, as with anything, who are really game for trying new and innovative things because they inherently understand it and they're keen to integrate it and take a little bit of a risk. There are then other types of individuals and organizations who take a little bit longer to see the results, to see early adopters using it before they want to adopt things into their organizations. And it's important that we have both of these personality types and organizational types in the market. One of the key things at a very basic adoption level is that the users, as in the students or the corporate learners, need to get into the software and use it without any blockers. And I think back to my time in healthcare, where I was asked to use multiple pieces of software, remember multiple different passwords, 
and that really slowed things down when your main focus is on caring for patients. And it's the same in a business setting. If you're working in a high-paced job, you don't want to be slowed down by lack of integration, by having to remember multiple passwords and from clunky systems. And so I think even before we get to new technology, whenever any type of technology is introduced, we need to make sure that that is as seamless and fits into existing business workflows. The most important thing is that any technology that's introduced actually aligns to business goals, reduces the time it takes to do tasks, helps with automation, and really makes people's lives easier. If it doesn't do that, regardless of what the technology is and how good it is, you know, you've really got to question it. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I think is, is the teachers, obviously, they're on, they're on the journey, right? I mean, the, the kids are probably teaching the teachers. That we, you know, so most of our kids, 8, 9, 10 years old, are already a level ahead, at least, you know, the, the ones that I see. So, and you see some teachers that are really open towards it and some that obviously need to be helped a bit more. But if uh, I think it's more about helping the teachers realising all of the amazing, re the amazing resources that are all available to them and how do they continue to change how they think about designing learning. So, you know, as we saw in the pandemic, our few school channel on YouTube went crazy because the teachers, but that's now continued, right? That's maintained because the teachers are now saying, actually, rather than me have to teach a concept, you know, on a prompt with a, with a, you know, some, some pens, I can now bring the best person to explain that concept into the room or ask them to go do it, you know, elsewhere. And I think in doing so, it frees up the time, right, for the children. So we ran an experiment, you know, different experiments a number of years ago. We actually gave all the kids mobile phones in the classroom. And we gave access to all the knowledge in the classroom. You gave them all their exercises and the teacher changed to become a pure facilitator. So the teacher wasn't teaching, they were, all the knowledge is on your phones, on, a, on, on the storage device and their little practice goes towards it. Every kid was, their, their progression was accelerated because they were able to learn best practice. They were able to learn at their speed. So the, the smart kids were able to go faster, to go to, the slower kids were able to go at their pace towards it. Not everyone's running at the same pace. And the teachers are able to touch and, to, and to, to mingle and to coach six or seven times more activity than they would have done otherwise. So I see, the, I see technology enabling the teachers to change the model of learning. That's the huge opportunity, right? But it is, it needs people to be brave, right? You know, I think some of the bravest teachers and schools I've seen who have completely switched their models to project-based learning. So, you know, the outcome, we're not going to, the outcome isn't to finish a course and to, and to not say that you've, um, you've read this manual, read this, this book, it's to board a restaurant or to do this project. And to do so, you'll learn maths and English and science and stuff on the way towards that. You'll still cover all the curriculum, but it's much more interesting, much more motivational, much more exciting. And the knowledge bits you can go and pick up from a bite-sized video to understand the physics of how to actually physically put all stuff together, for example. So yeah, lots of different things inside there. And one thing what I think would, kind of happen in future would be it's going to be a continuous learning and not just a degree complete or a post-graduation complete. It will be learning always is a continuous thing but even from upskilling point of view because of the availability of the content post-graduation or post-graduation through e-learning platforms or other digital platforms, people will be upskilling themselves on a continuous basis and this helps them in terms of being on top of things and be ready for any challenges that they are going to face at their work or on job. Schools needs to be proactive in terms of implementing the digital transformation projects right now. And this is the time, probably I would say it's already laid by two to three years and who have already adopted or implemented digital transformation projects are reaping benefits now. 
but for them to be future ready and be the future of education they need to digitally transform themselves adopt technology add technology driven teaching as part of their core process and be ready for the disruption that is going to happen i have three more questions for you before we wrap up one is kind of a fun one then a random one and then more of a personal one the fun one is like what would be one of the coolest experiences for you in the future for education Any thoughts? I am super excited about the possibilities of VR. You mentioned before that uh, being able to go to Moon, well, um, Dreamscape is actually creating that environment for um, ASU where you can go to the Moon and and be able to experience space. So being able to go, you know, it's almost like, you know, the hologram uh, (laughs) from world movies, but being able to go, I want to experience this and I can't get there and and being able to step into that experience and then be able to come back out. Um, I think that's super exciting. Awesome. And then this is a random question, but it's always intrigued me. And I'm interested in your thoughts. Having kids, I have a teenager down to a two-year-old. And I always, when I always see new parents, you know, I I talk to them about this and it's like, hey, you know, we go through all these years of education, but it doesn't seem like we get any training to be, you know, a new parent for those that are going through that experience. (laughs) Um, And we assume that we get all that training uh, from our family or that we have good parents that, you know, that teach us all those principles. But do you see a role for the educational system to kind of teach more about just healthy relationships and, you know, parenting skills or interpret, like how to be a good spouse? I mean, I know that's like, that's, those are kind of personal things, but like, I guess it ties to relationships, you know, any thoughts on that? Yeah. These things are real. Well, and these used to be, t- you know, and it's only recently that we've had this kind of single family household. Historically, in fact, in most parts of the world, a community literally does raise a child. Like that idea of it takes a village. It, it, that's actually how we were designed. <laughs> you know, so you would get the different skills from different adults that were, or other people who were in your lives. Agreed. Yes. And we, so when I was coming through school, you know, I had things like home ec and, you know, mechanical and, and you know, we actually did learn some of that stuff. And then there was a, oh, you know, like all that stuff is you know, like a waste of time and that should be taught in the home. And so some of that was politics, mm. but you're starting to see, even on the college level, um, Harvard actually did this. They added a class and it ended up being on the most popular class on just like personal finance. Right. Like, folks were getting through and having no idea my big one, when I, even though I taught mostly English, I always taught compound interest. Like you need to understand that if you put <laughs> money in the bank <laughs> and do it for 10 years and then never put more on money, like you're still going to make more money than if you start when you're 30. Like some really right. like practical kinds of things. We need to have those. Like we, we need it. Yeah. And I do. And I, I think it's understanding there are some families will make sure that the kids get that no matter what. So it's really more about who is not necessarily getting that from, and for all kinds of reasons, parents are working three jobs or they're new to this country, or there's all kinds right. of reasons why, why folks might not have, might be able, not be able to, or have access to that kind of knowledge. So I do, but I would say the, the one thing I would tell parents is that, that sleep is really important. Sleep. Like, yep. Sleep is the single best thing you can do for learning for all ages. Like the, the brain needs that time to be able to process and to be able to hold on to information. I would, like if I would go back and tell my high school self, take fewer APs and get sleep. Like I never needed all that. That was my last question for you, actually. It was oh, like, oh. what would you tell your 18-year-old <laughs> self? What kind of advice you to give? So you'd say, get more sleep. I really would. I would say, you do not need to did not need to take all the classes that I did. I did not need to. And, and I think this, I see this happening with lots and lots of young people. Like they're so worried about getting into the right college and they are just stacking their, that they are burnt out. You know, kids taking a year off because they're burnt out from high school. Like, what is that? What is that? 
yes, sleep, advocated this and didn't quite get it across. I wanted to do a national campaign on sleep because uh, it really is the fundamental thing we could do to make a big difference. It would actually help with um, car accidents, but but on the learning side, <laughs> yeah, it really, like teenagers would be able to hold on to things. I would rather kids get sleep than homework. Yeah, and I didn't think that earlier in my life, but having looked at all the research and what I know about how people learn now, I would say sleep is the thing that I would tell parents and teachers. Seen so much research about that on how important that is. I have Why We Sleep, the book next to my bedside, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think that uh, it's great to hear that for your, you know, thinking about your younger self and for those that are in that stage right now that are probably bombarded with lots of exciting things around them, lots of exciting technology. It's really easy to stay up late these days, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. prioritizing that given its long-term impact to learning and to your health. I love it. Well, and I would say turn off your tech an hour before you go to sleep. That's a good practical tip. Thank you. It's my pleasure having you here on the show. It's been a fun conversation. I'm impressed with your passion. I can I can feel it. <laughs> I can hear it. But also your, your thoughts and your perspectives as an expert in this space and how you're thinking about the future. So a million thanks for you know fitting the time in as a fellow executive. I know how hard that is. So thank you. No, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> the Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcast, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.